From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks. Highlights from our weekly discussion on race, culture, and our shared humanity. Today, housing right. A tenant who is not smoking inside of a non-smoking building, who gets along with their neighbors, and who isn't running an illegal puppy mill out of the bathroom, they have a right to stay there. Also, a look at discrimination in prisons after a state report found more disciplinary actions against inmates of color. The racism is so pervasive that it manifests itself in something like discipline, not just discipline, housing. Voice Buffalo also joins us today, and we look at the rise and fall of business along Jefferson Avenue. I'm Jay Moran. Thanks for joining us. We begin with a look at New York State prisons and a state inspector general's report on how they treat prisoners of color more harshly. Here's WBFO's Dave Devo with Jerome Wright. Jerome is the head of the Halt Solitary Group and has worked in prisons from across the state for several years. He himself is a formerly incarcerated individual. We'll get into all of that. Jerome, thanks for being here. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Before we talk about what's in the report, let me outline some of the things that are in the report. Well, we'll go through the bullet points, I think, one by one here. In New York State, the inspector general found that a black incarcerated individual was 22% more likely to be issued a misbehavior report than a white incarcerated individual. A Hispanic individual, 12% more likely to be issued a misbehavior report. And an incarcerated individual categorized as others was 9% more likely to get a misbehavior report. I'm betting... I mean, I can see it on your face right now. This does not come as a surprise to you. No, and it is just a testament to that. If you don't learn from history, you're deemed to repeat it. And um, I, my, my personal story is, is intertwined in this. And but, but I would like to say, first of all, Dave, thank you for the invitation. Glad to do it. Second of all, we're talking about a topic of racism, and I want to thank the station for having a piece here remembering their name of the 10 individuals from our community that were murdered in a racist attack. In the studio where we do this program, we have a poster with their names and their ages, and uh, just a reminder to mention them every now and then. So that that's indeed what Jerome is referring to. I think it's where this program springs from, the idea that the top shooting not only killed 10 people, but brought to light some issues that we need to discuss. Yes. And yes. in so doing... We broaden it here eventually now, so it's not necessarily about the east side and Jefferson Avenue. But you said it, that this report is strictly, basically racism. Well, let me tell you, my story is is the genesis of this. In 1990, I was a plaintiff against the Department of Corrections in a lawsuit, Santiago versus Miles, federal lawsuit, here in Buffalo Federal Court. That lawsuit was about racism at Elmira Correctional Facility. The same issues that more black and brown people were getting disciplined. They didn't get the same jobs. They didn't get the same housing. We're talking about incarcerated people. We won that lawsuit. It was proved undeniably that there was a a system of racism at Elmira, which really permeates the entire system. And this was in 1990. So after the lawsuit, then reforms must have been instituted, and everything's fine, and this 
Why, why hasn't it changed? Well, first of all, you can't reform something that is inherently broken. You have to change it completely. Mm-hmm. And what we have now is a system where you try to put a Band-Aid on it, and it really needs surgery. You can't fix it doing what they're doing. And racism is the issue here. Why, when you have a population that is predominantly black and brown, do you have these disproportionate numbers in all of these areas, not in one or two, in every area of that system? So how do we fix it? The uh, report from the inspector general says more training, specifically on implicit bias, although I bet you would argue that this is not implicit, um, and that they need to gather more data figure out exactly what the problem is, and then target solutions based on what that data reveals. I am going to be totally honest with you. That's not enough for you. You have to get rid of Anthony Annucci and that entire administration that that's right there now that has curried this for years, decades. You need change at the top. You need to bring in people who are, one, reform-minded, and who recognize that the paradigm of punishment we've been using does not work. It doesn't promote public safety. It doesn't make people safe in there. It is a failed experiment. What does discipline look like now? Do they just take a a prisoner and, and write them up through a series of graduated warnings until, what, they put them in solitary? I just need to correct you. There are no prisoners. We are incarcerated Incarcerated individuals. individuals. And that's all right. And that's a new moniker, but words are important. And and calling somebody a prisoner or inmate dehumanizes. Calling them an individual and a person humanizes them. And if the system humanized us, we wouldn't be having these problems. Okay, so incarcerated individuals break rules, get written up, one, two, three, four times before thrown in solitary? No. Take me through the process. First of all, you can get written up and not do something wrong. So you, your premise was that you'd have to do <laughs> something wrong to get written up. All right. I've been written up several times for not doing anything wrong, but exercising my right to talk about issues, to rally people around, to help individuals. So let's take off the table right or wrong. But are, you get a ticket. Are you, the wrongs uh, enumerated in advance? In other words, I shouldn't be ticketed for driving... 50 miles an hour in a place that has no posted speed limit sign. To the- no, they don't do that. No, they give you a rule book when you come in that's, I don't know, a, a half inch thick with all the rules in there. But see, when you have a system that is as draconian and as authoritarian as that is, they don't even follow their own rules. They break their own. That's why I'm working with Hawk. Right now, we have a law in effect that they're not even doing. They should not be locking people in for more than 15 days. They should not have any of the excluded groups of people in there, which they always have. People with mental illness. Nobody with mental illness should be in solitary confinement, black, brown, or otherwise. They have them in there. No person under 18 or over 55 or with a physical or otherwise disabled should be in solitary confinement. They still do it. And listen, the whole premise behind solitary confinement we need to separate you from population. I get that. I agree with that. Some people But need you to be contend separated. it has become punitive. It is torture because what you do is, first of all, I don't know any problem that you have that you put it, lock it away, and you go back to it later and it solved itself. So if, if this person is a problem individual, they need more services than you're giving them, which is none. HALT requires that you give them programming, you give them treatment, you give them therapy, you give them congregate, a recreation, none of which is being done. How many of the misbehavior reports, how many strikes before you end up in solitary? One. 
That's it. Depends on the nature of the charge. You can go to South. This is what I'm telling you. It is a total abuse of authority. You can go to solitary for any reason. When the Halt Law enumerates the only reasons you should be put in solitary, but you can go for anything else that they mm. want to. Now listen, there's a list. Like the Penal Code has these laws listed. Halt has these other violations that demand solitary. They don't do that. They, when they, whatever, whatever they decide to put you in there, that's when you go. You said that the biggest solution would be reform from the top. Um, does this obviously include a purge of racist officers? Would that be? Would that do it for you? I don't know how you can do that. I don't think how you can tell if anybody is inherently racist. You know, I mean, their actions usually de- de- delineate that they're racist. Right. But people, people who are racist. Don't always act on that, you know, because they don't want people to know that. They play the game. So I don't think getting rid of race is... But in this report, it says they do act on it. Again, a black incarcerated individual, 22% more likely to be issued a misbehavior report. That's an action. Can they measure that? Um, They they did in this report. Could they measure that in the um, facility and then say, gee, your record is you wrote up more blacks than whites? They could do that. They have no vested interest in doing that, and they're not going to do that. But let me give you an example. Here we have here we have an officer who everybody knows, all incarcerated individuals and the staff is a problem. Maybe racist, maybe just abusive. Right? Everybody knows this. If I wrote him up for doing what he does, that's wrong. That everybody knows, they're going to support him. Regardless, and everybody knows they being the system, the system. Yes. The sergeant who supervises him, the deputy of whatever uh, program that is that's over. They all you know what? Ninety five percent of of anything that's filed by an incarcerated person comes back non unfounded. So if you can't tag a particular officer as racist and they are continuing to commit racist offenses. What do you do? You do what we're doing right now. You talk about it and you ask the public to stop holding your head in the sand and to get involved with what's going on. Because this is this prison is only a microcosm of what's actually going on out here in the society. Oh, now we got to get into that, and we will when, in a little bit after the break. But I, I do want to get you to comment on um, the response from the prison system. Yes. Uh, in this Inspector General's report, and by the way, uh, as soon as this program is done, as soon as this segment is done, while Jay Moran is talking about housing coming up next, we will tweet out a link to this entire Inspector General's report. So if there's anything here that we're talking about that sparks your interest, you'll be able to read that and go a little bit more in depth. We're also going to throw a link up at WBFO.org. But in the Inspector General's report, it says uh, the Department of Correctional Services has responded with this. The complexity of attempting to link causal factors of racial disparity in the criminal justice system is well documented in social science literature. As the report states, it's difficult to determine with confidence whether or not any particular racial disparity is the result of implicit or explicit bias or is the result of structural, legal, social, environmental factors. I think what they're trying to say, and I don't want to put too much in, too many words in their mouth, is you can't measure this and say that guards are just being racist toward blacks. It might be that there's something else going on, and they, they, they say that the something else could be a variety of things, but that the measurement isn't easy to do. 
buck back against that. Gobbly gook. Isn't that the word? <laughs> Gobbly gook. I like how they, that, 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 to the unlearned, that sounds really logical. To somebody who's experienced that, if you know that an officer is racist, you can get him out of there. But the union and everybody is colluded in this. The union will support an officer who they know is racist, who comes into the facility with a baby, with a, a black baby with a noose around its head, who belongs to organizations that we saw during the January 6th uprising here in, in, in Washington. They know who these people are. All right. Now, again tentative argument here for the sake of uh, discussion. Mm -hmm. I would bet that if you went to Noscoba, the New York State Correctional mm -hmm. Officers PBA, mm -hmm. and said you're supporting the wrong guys here, part of their response would be, yeah. in a prison environment, I'm not going to cut the legs out from under my guard. I'm going to support my guard because my guard is at risk on a daily basis. That that level of support isn't necessarily institutional racism, they would probably argue that it's it's the blue line. It's it's supporting your own because the environment is such where if you don't, people are at risk. We're back to the macro micro discussion. You have you wanted to wait till right. after the yeah, break? No, that's cool. Okay, because I'm saying it is. Suppose cops out here. That's what they feel. That's why you have a blue line with officers where they won't rat on each other, but they demand that the community rats on each other. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's that blue line where it's not about right or wrong or law and order. It's about we support each other. It, the cops are the biggest gang in America. Don't the officers need to have visible authority over the population? And if, if you start... What do you mean? What does visible authority well, mean? The support of those above them. Um, if they're doing lawfully the right thing, gotcha. nobody should be. Listen, in every industry, including yours, there are people that everybody knows is a problem. You know what we do? We don't. We talk about them around the water cooler. We talk about them with the with the wives and husbands at home. But nobody does go does anything about them on the job, and they last forever. That's the status quo. That's what's got to go. We got to get people out of the way who are causing the problems. I got to ask you before the break, and we will go macro, micro in just a bit. We're going to do more macro after the break. <laughs> but um, one of the facilities cited in this inspector general's report that had the worst problem, they said there are about four of them. Downstate was singled out as the absolute worst. Set closed now. Okay. Attica was on the list of the worst. Tell me about Attica. You visit incarcerated individuals there. You know what's going on inside that facility. You're worried. Yes, I see what's, go what's going on now that the potential exists for another Attica rebellion to happen. That department has now taken away everything. They don't follow the law with halt. They've taken visits away in large measure. They've taken packages from home away. They've taken everything. They've taken mail away. They don't even give you your mail. They photocopy your mail and give it to you. How, how, how ridiculous is that? I don't get the fiscal. Let me tell you something. When I was incarcerated, one of the great things was getting off of my bed to walk to the gate to pick up mail that I smelled before I got mm. there because my wife had her scent on there. You don't smell that from Xerox copies. But aren't they trying to implicitly say, we have control over you? We even have control to the point that we can photocopy your mail. Yes. And if 
if, if slavery. I, if I'm regularly saying to you, I have control over you, you are more likely to be controlled by something like photocopies and mail than having to use a, a nightstick or worse. No, you're not controlling me. You're causing me more angst and anger. I'm not getting better. I'm getting more bitter. You're taking my contact from the outside world. You're you're eviscerating me as a human being. While you change my name from inmate to incarcerated individual, I am still a slave. Jerome Wright is here. He's, He's one of the coordinators of the statewide Halt Solitary campaign. Up till now in the program, we've been talking quite a bit about a recent Inspector General's report from New York State that says black and Hispanic incarcerated individuals are a lot more likely, about 22% more likely, to be disciplined than white incarcerated individuals in New York State facilities. Can we add a caveat? Sure, put an The caveat is that they're saying for the same behavior, the same events. So they are measuring at least with the same yardstick across the board. Yeah, but it's not measuring up. Because black and brown are, are disproportionately being impacted. All right. Just like in society. Let's do it again. Well, but let's talk more about society. Let's let's do the macro. Let's shove the report aside for a little bit, and let's just talk about the conditions and the system uh, in correctional facilities. And I know you have a problem with that word. Mm-hmm. Correctional. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Why call it a correctional facility? What's being corrected? There is no. First of all, the whole idea of rehabilitation is a misnomer. Rehabilitation is when you have something, it gets hurt, and you bring it back to where it used to be. You're talking about people didn't have anything to begin with. So how? Are you, what are you rehabilitating to? And what services are you getting to habilitate them? There is no education. There's no real vocation. they just getting college back on a, on a small scale. But again, where is the real help? The communities that are the safest in America are the ones with the most resources. The jails that run the best are the ones with the most programming, the most therapeutic and treatment environments, and have an administration who is proactive and progressive, not reactive and restrictive. And you know of what you speak because of your personal story. Because of 30-plus years of being incarcerated for a crime I did commit. 30 years. Yeah, 30 years. I don't even know how to react to that. That's an incredibly long time, Jerome. Yes, it is. That's a generation. If you look in the dictionary, they, 30 years is considered a generation. So I spent a generation from my from 18 to 48 years old incarcerated. But what I saw during that is what's in that report. And it's a shame that the inspector general coming out with that in 2002 was in 1990. That report was written then. Because of the case of Santiago versus Miles. We won the suit because the judge found out that there was credible evidence, just like the inspector general found out again, that the racism is so pervasive that it manifests itself in something like discipline. Not just discipline, housing. You go to any honor dorm, which they call honor housing. And the honor housing is? Is where you get more amenities. More privileges. More privileges. Special, okay. special privileges. The ratio will be... 85% white people and mixture of everybody else in a facility that will be 85 or 90% black people. Hmm. You go to certain dorms that or housing units that are considered the best by cleanliness, size of cell, and every amenities, they're going to be populated by white people. If you go to whether it's discipline, housing, employment, there are jobs that me, a black man, in a facility couldn't get. Why? How? Because I'm black. 
They won't have me working in Elmira on the on the on the main floor. That that's a, that was if you went to the program committee and said I wanted that job, they laugh at you. They might write you up for being insolent wow. and, and, and send you to solitary. I, you, I'm telling you the God's honest truth. Man, my life is an open book. I have nothing to hide and nothing to lie about. This system is rotten from the core, and the status quo has got to go. That means from the top to the bottom, we need to reshape this. Let me say, Aristotle said this, not me. He said, poverty is the parent to rebellion and crime. Say that again. Poverty is the parent of the twins' rebellion and crime. Wherever you have poverty, you're going to have rebellion and you're going to have crime. Okay, so that speaks to the idea that we need more community programs on the front end. Exactly. What would it take to get the kind of reforms that you'd like? That sounds like you're you're recommending a wholesale top to bottom attitude change. And I imagine that that involves not just personnel but probably a change in the facilities too in 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 their physical structure in everything top to bottom. You're asking for for more than I think they would be able to do, right? Not not able. You got to be willing. willing. To, you got to be willing to do some things because if you're willing, we're able to do anything. We can ready to put people on Mars. You telling me we can't fix a problem right here? And why go up there if we can? Yeah. We're spending billions of dollars to fix people to go to to a planet that most of us will never visit. And we can't put that same amount of money, a, a fraction of that money, into correcting this system? You can't tell me that. And the east side can't get a million dollars for a, a, a nonprofit organization to run like a, 50, like, like a real 501c should run or like these other corporations that are headed by white people. This is what I'm saying. There's no difference out there. You, macro, micro. The higher you go up in this country, the whiter it gets. No difference. Are you an optimist? If we were having this conversation again in a year, do you think there would be different things to talk about, change? I am an eternal optimist. And I think that we can tackle some things right now. And there are things that are going to take time. You know, change is not overnight. It is a process. But let's begin the process in earnest. Jerome Wright from the Halt Solitary Movement with WBFO's Dave Debo. A similar discussion continues now with Reverend Denise Walden Glenn and Tyrell Ford from Voice Buffalo. Reverend Walden Glenn, thanks for being here. We'll start with you. What education does the community need right now about the courts as we prepare to possibly prosecute Peyton Gendron for the top shootings? Um, I think there's a lot of education that needs to happen, or at least information around navigating the court process. Um, there were a lot of questions in the beginning of the trials about like the arraignment, what that looked like, um, the timeline on when the trial actually starts versus the time um, he was arrested and the arraignment hearing. And then what are the differences between the state case and the federal case? And we know in the state case we've gotten our plea right. and that's going where it needs to go. But now there's still a lot of questions around what's going to happen with the federal case, how he's actually going to plea and what next steps will be. On Friday in court, it was revealed that uh, he is prepared, in the words of his attorney, is prepared to plead guilty to the federal case as long as the death penalty is off the table. The, the part of the rationale for that the defense attorneys are putting out is that would that would be better for the community. There wouldn't have to be a trial. There wouldn't have to be trauma. 
Do you agree? I believe that this is a very sensitive issue. I believe it's one that um, a lot of folks are wrestling with, including those who are most impacted by this tragedy. I believe that as a community, we have to wrestle with that question of what truly is going to be justice? What is justice going to look like in this situation? Um, we can look at the death penalty and we can say that we would like to see uh, the attorney general seek the death penalty, but will ending his life truly bring justice to this horrific act that happened. And we also have to look at where all the responsibility lies. And if we're just placing all of our anger and our rage um, in one direction, when there's still a larger context that we need to look at. And to my mind, correct me if I'm wrong, the larger context is that the death penalty has been used often against yes, black has. and brown people disproportionately. Yes, it has. So you're kind of in a in a quandary there, I would think. Not not you in general, but but the the public. It's definitely conflicting, and I think also the age of this individual makes a difference to how people are viewing uh -huh. this case. Um, I have to say, in my lifetime, I've known many young people who have gotten incarcerated at very young ages, from 16 to 18 years old, um, serving significant. Uh, sentences, but when they come home, they are definitely not the same person they were when they got arrested, and some of them arrested for what ones would classify as a heinous act. Again, I'm not saying that this is not the death penalty is not something we should be looking at, but I am asking people to, again to wrestle with that. What does justice? If we like? talk about the death penalty, you want to make sure that it's in the broadest context possible. Absolutely, absolutely, and I want to make sure like we've really considered all of the pieces of this and understanding uh, this person is 18 years old. This person was radicalized um, for a good portion of their life and how that impacted. And again, is this where we really want to place all of um, the guilt, all of the blame, or do we need to be taking some of the energy we're placing there and look at the larger context and larger scope of things? You said a moment ago that you are familiar with several people his age or younger, who have dealt with the criminal justice system, who have been incarcerated. Tell me a story. Um, to be honest, I think all of us who do this work have personal stories. So my um, only biological brother, who is uh, seven years younger than me, has been impacted by the carceral system since he was 14 years old. Um, and so I've watched what it's done to his life and impacted his life. Um, but Similarly, the father of my children, my ex-husband, um, has been in and out of the carceral system since he was 13 years old. And so, again, just looking at who they are now in their 30s and 40s versus who they were um, when they were impacted by these things, um, they're very different people. They've grown a lot. Um, and to see what they're accomplishing in their life now, I have to think that if uh, one were to... Think of something like life in prison or the death penalty when they um, committed some of the offenses they were charged with as teenagers and really children almost. Um, what would be the difference in their life? Um, so, yeah. And a lot of what Voice Buffalo does, maybe this is the point where we bring in Tyrell. Absolutely. Uh, Tyrell Ford is with us. He's their lead organizer. A lot of what Voice Buffalo does is work with the incarcerated populations, or as you said, people who have been impacted by the carceral system, 
basically those who have been to jail. Talk about your work, Tyrell. What does it look like? Do you actually, maybe not with COVID anymore, but do you go into the prisons and, and work with these people, talk with them about the concerns they're having? Or is it more of a reintegration program after release? So as a person who is directly impacted by the legal system, it is a lifelong sentence to carry around a felony. Um, so what we try to do is make sure we educate everybody who's been in that system um, just on the importance of our civic duties um, because we need to change the laws that directly impact, Im impacts us um, because we, we deserve a right just to be a human and just to live a normal life. And our criminal history shouldn't define us. When you say we, do you have a personal story to tell that you want to share on the radio? Yeah, so I'm I'm directly impacted. I went through the court system. I have a second-degree felony, and that was something that happened right after college. I got into, like, a little street fight where somebody had got injured, um, and I, I went up to it because um, that was the one mistake I made in my life. Um, but the process in which I was treated going through my court case was very traumatic for me being a um, first-time person going through the court system, it impacted my mental health. Um, I didn't even want to talk about it when I got out because it's so like, I don't want nobody judging me mm -hmm. and making claims about my character because that happened a lot a lot during the trial um, because po folks felt like they knew me just based off the size of me and the color of my skin. But if most people tell you I'm lovable. I'm enjoyable to be around, but during that that whole court case, they painted me as a, a villain and a, just an ugly human being. And so part of your work with Voice as an organizer is to go into the prisons and talk to people before release? Yes, because it's important to like know what avenues you can take, what steps you can take to better your life. Um, when I got out, I didn't know which way to go. I didn't know if I would be able to get a job. Because we often like, oh, a felony, you ain't going to be able to work nowhere. But a lot of folks are making it, and we are striving, um, and we are the people who needs to tell our story. Denise, you're nodding your head. Um, <laughs> these stories don't get told a lot, do they? No, they don't. Not the true story anyway. A lot of what we talk about in voice is the sacred narrative, which is what we know as people who are of and from and in the community to be true versus what the dominant narrative, what's assumed about us, um, the, the stereotypes that people try to fold us into that aren't necessarily always true. You look at someone who has been incarcerated for multiple years for um, offenses like uh, drugs or um, assault or sometimes even murder. And we tell a narrative about those people, but we don't talk about the things and the policy decisions that have impacted their life that pushed them into making decisions like the ones that they did. And now they're stuck for the rest of their life with this almost black mark on them that they can't come out of. And not just them, I should say us as someone who I've never been incarcerated, but I've definitely been through the legal system. Um, I've been arrested and tried for cases in my life. And I remember when I was going through my trial, the story that was being told to my children and my family about me as a mother was one of the most shameful and horrific times of my life. And it's one 
that breaks my heart till this day because I know I was not the person that they tried to make me out to be in that courtroom. And I also know my story. I know what I come from. Um, and so I know what I work to overcome to become the person that I am now. How much of uh, an interplay is there between things like reacting to May 14th, uh, I know you have something called the Radical Love Fund, community work that would be ongoing regardless of your criminal justice stuff, and how much of what Voice Buffalo does is the criminal justice stuff. So the truth is, um, Voice Buffalo, we are an restorative interfaith racial justice and equity organizing organization. And so we do all that we can to keep our work from being reactive, although to some degree it will always be reactive because as long as there are systems in place that oppress people and break people, we have to respond to that. But the response that we give to that is not so much in just focusing on what's broken and what we get people while they're broken, but what needs to happen to either reconstruct and rebuild or what needs to be new that will allow people the things that they need every day to thrive in life, not even just survive. And so our work is definitely more upstream and figuring out, okay, yes, we know these things are broken, like these things in the criminal justice system are broken, but what laws, what policies need to be in place that we no longer will have a system that is breaking people, but truly restoring people and giving people a chance to thrive in life. The example I think of reactive, yes, in that after the top shooting, there was a march in Washington that you led talking about gun rights, but then non-reactive, the kind of things that Terrell was talking about, ongoing programs to work with the incarcerated, two prongs. Absolutely. It's uh, both, right? We need to be doing both. We need to be able to support people where they are, but we also need to be able to be building the thing that we need. And the truth is, even when we look at May 14th, May 14th um, happened because the east side of Buffalo is an impoverished community, right? Um and because they're an impoverished community, they're a food apartheid. And because they're a food apartheid, that made them an easy target for this individual to come into knowing that there would be a large amount of people at that market on that day doing their weekly shopping. But at Voice, we often say poverty is a policy choice. So... We don't just look at what happened on May 14th. We don't just look at the fact that we're food apartheid, but we look at why and we look at what policy should be in place so a community never has to be that in the first place. Reverend Denise Walden-Glenn and Tyrell Fors from Voice Buffalo. This is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks, a chance to revisit important conversations from our daily program heard each weekday morning at 10 and rebroadcast each night at 9. Coming up, Jefferson Avenue. And the only way that Cold Springs or Broadway or Sycamore or Genesee is going to be successful is if we rebuild the conditions that existed prior to destroying so many houses. But first, housing issues. Our guest this morning from Push Buffalo, Teresa Watson, who is the housing justice organizer. Hi, Teresa. Hi, everybody. And uh, Sarah Frazier is with us. She is the street team coordinator. Hi, Sarah. Hello. I want to talk about the realities of living in the city of Buffalo. 60% mm -hmm. of 
people that live in the city of Buffalo are renters, correct? Correct. That is true. Yeah. Well, I will I will admit we round up by about 0.3%. It okay. is actually like 59.7 or something like that. Um, as of the, the most recent census data, it may have even gone up with the recent crisis in housing and costs. Um, but yeah, roughly 60% of the city is renters. And that's something that I think we we don't recognize a lot. We don't think of the uh, tenants as a majority of the population um, by a long shot, right? And uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, right? We prioritize homeownership as a society for a lot of reasons, but then that creates a, a false dichotomy, right? So tenants, um, tenants deserve the same rights and protections and quality of life as anybody else. And to be a tenant is not a failing, right? I am a tenant. I and am a tenant. Yeah. I really enjoy being a tenant. I don't know how to fix a roof. <laughs> I don't know how to snake my drains. <laughs> I enjoy that, you know, that I can have a responsible small local landlord who does actually come and do repairs as needed. But unfortunately, that is not the reality for the vast majority of us. And that was what I was going to get into there, Teresa, is just that, that idea that, okay, sure. Okay, you're a renter and it's going to be hassle-free renting, right? <laughs> but that's not necessarily the case. And, and Sarah, part of your street team, you went out and canvassed about this uh, tenant bill of rights. And so you met with thousands of people who Correct. live in the city of Buffalo. Take me through, if you could, just a couple of the stories of the types of things that people are dealing with as renters in the city of Buffalo. So um, a lot of, we went over the course of um, the summer we canvassed over a thousand doors. Thousands. Thousands of mm -hmm. doors. And some of the stories that we heard on the doors were um, the, the the single mother of three children that is living in the lower apartment of a, a two-family home. Okay. And the top porch is falling. You can literally see the beans and see where it's broken. She's afraid to let her children come outside and play on the porch. She lives on a very busy street, so there is no place for them to actually go down on the grass and play and things of that nature. So they're stuck in the house. Yeah, and you also told me that not only that, but as you're going onto the porch of many homes in the city of Buffalo, mm -hmm. um, which, which are apartments in these cases or flats or whatever the case may be, some of those porches um, are were dangerous. unsafe, extremely unsafe. Um, there were times when we actually weren't able to get up on the porch and we ended up having to meet the tenant at like the back door or something of that nature in order to speak with them, in order to get information from them and have them sign the postcard because of the fact that we were afraid we were going to fall through the porch. And this say, is where people are living. Right. I definitely developed the habit of testing the steps. I'm about a 200-pound person. I would test the steps before mm -hmm. I would go up if they looked a little suspicious. And I broke myself of the habit of using railings because none of the railings, are maybe secured. not none, but very few 
are secure. And so I would actually, I would touch the railing. The railing would move. I would feel unstable. Right. And mm -hmm. so I just, I don't use railings anymore. Right. <laughs> so you're tiptoeing your way up through these porches to try to talk to people. You said, if I'm not mistaken, what, 1,200 people, you, you, when you were going out canvassing, you mm -hmm. had these postcards, not necessarily just from the street team, but also from other events and things like that. Mm -hmm. 1,200 people responded to your, uh, to, with those postcards and sent them back to you? That's, I mean, that's, a, that's an astounding number of, of people who had issues, obviously, mm -hmm. and were gen they generated enough, um, enough energy in the sense that they wanted to do something about it. They sent these postcards, and that says to me a lot about, uh, mm -hmm. if that's just a, a capsule of the renters in the city of Buffalo, that says a lot about the way a renter feels about their current situation. Yes, and so we... We collected the majority of them on the doors. We did the street team, of course, was canvassing, and all our members as well, people volunteering their time, um, multiple different evenings and weekends. Uh, we had folks going out every week. A couple canvases were running with members as well as with the street team. And we did collect over 1,200 signed postcards from across the city. Uh, and th those were all tenants, some landlord or some, excuse me, not landlords, but some some smaller homeowners. homeowners, especially we would hear from folks who would say, I own my home, but my daughter is in a horrible situation or my son is he's couch surfing right now. He stays with me sometimes and sometimes with friends closer to his job because he's working, but he can't find anywhere he can afford. So mm -hmm. we would, or sometimes you would talk to a homeowner who would say, you know, the people that live next door to me, they're great, but I know the person who owns it isn't keeping it up. And I'm getting rats in my house because yes. that landlord won't take care of the property. Correct. And they would know that it wasn't the tenant's fault because those tenants had been there for three or four months and the problems had been going on for years. So this is, this is something too that we would see very often something we hear blamed on tenants as if it is their fault that the building itself has become infested through neglect. When a, a tenant, a renter, complains about the situation and, try, and gets in a dispute with the landlord or whatever the case may be, what is sometimes the response they get when they say, okay, you know, my plumbing's not working, I don't have running water, my pipes are contaminated, what is sometimes the response they get? At least you have somewhere to live. At least you have somewhere to live. At least you have a roof over your head, whether the roof is falling through. A tacit <laughs> threat of homelessness. Correct. And I think that it can be followed up by not just a tacit threat, but a genuine threat. A genuine threat. So, yeah, and take me through that. Take me through the, how that might work. Mm -hmm. if somebody, okay, I, I, I'm done dealing with this electric issue in my in my my apartment i'm not paying mm -hmm. this rent yes. or i'm i'm you know i'm, I'm going to take you to housing court or whatever the mm -hmm. case may be what sometimes happens beyond that yes so i think whether or not a tenant is withholding rent which is of course their legal right but there are very specific ways that a tenant needs to do that sure. many folks do not know um, that you need to have your money in escrow when you go to housing court or you will not be respected by the housing court judge, frankly. Um, so will I would, they automatically d dismiss your case? Yeah, they will yes. functionally say that uh, it looks like you just didn't feel like paying because you don't have the money here, so you were never willing to pay, so it must not be about the repairs. 
And and mm-hmm. that happens to far too many people. So I would really encourage folks that Neighborhood Legal Services has several really great PDFs just up online that you can read on how to properly withhold your rent so that you protect yourself. I will say that um, is just like as an aside. Sure. But before you, whether or not people are doing it in the quote unquote correct ways, because we know that when you're dealing with a longstanding issue, you're frustrated, you've been telling this landlord about it for maybe months um, and getting no response, then maybe you do withhold, maybe you don't. Either way, you are not actually protected as a tenant. Your ability to stay in your home is not guaranteed. So there's um, something called a 30 or a 60 or sometimes a 90 day notice. So in 2019, the laws changed and people, depending on how long they've been in their home, get slightly more time than just 30 days to be exited from their apartment. But nobody gets more than 90 days to find a new home under the law because a landlord has the right at any time to turn people out without a court process, without any need for legal paperwork, um, without any kind of government oversight. They just can say, uh, even though you're a tenant in good standing, even though perhaps your rent is up to date or perhaps you're withholding one month of rent from me or half a month's rent, Mm -hmm. which amounts to $500 or something like that. um, I, as the landlord, as the owner of this unit, have decided to exit you. And there is nothing that a tenant can do about that. Once you have received this notice to vacate, you're done. There's, There's... there's nothing that a legal provider can do to protect you. And so that is where I say organizing comes in. But one of the solutions that we know tenants need um, is good cause. And that's a policy that we're pushing for at both the state and the local level. Can you maybe give me a, a description, perhaps, of a place, I don't know, pick, on, pick a neighborhood mm-hmm. and, uh, and a price that you saw and you could not believe that somebody was paying this much for this type of property? There were in the Broadway market area, um, a lot of the canvases that we did down there, rents were $1,200, $1,300 to piggyback off of Teresa's story. So then the landlord then comes to this point of kicking this tenant out because they were there withholding because they're not getting the repairs done that they need to have done. This landlord then takes it upon themselves and hikes up the rent Mm -hmm. for the next person to move in. And because of the fact that there are not enough houses in -hmm. our city for people to be safe and secure Mm -hmm. or think that they're going to be safe and secure, they can charge $1,500 for these Mm -hmm. units. And And people are breaking their necks to pay this. Mm -hmm. I can think of one one woman that I met in the in the Broadway Fillmore neighborhood. Mm -hmm. She's a a single mom. She's living on the first floor of one of those classic Buffalo duplexes. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm sure we can all picture, right? Right. Um, And instead of a window, she has put the lid of a Rubbermaid tote up um, in the window directly next to her door. And she told me that she had, in fact, even bought the glass 
for her landlord to replace the window after it got busted out. But over a month later, he still had not replaced it. So this is a single woman living on a first floor with a visibly busted out window, having to put pieces of plastic over her window to try to keep herself safe. And the landlord is refusing to repair it. We're talking with Teresa Watson and Sarah Frazier from Push Buffalo this morning. Push Buffalo has put together a tenant bill of rights. This is a a fascinating document that looks and covers a lot of different issues. And just like the bill of rights that we've all become familiar with and attached to the U.S. Constitution, there are 10 in there. We're not necessarily going to go through all 10 right now, Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we can maybe put that off for a later uh, program, but there are a couple of key elements here that we most certainly want to get into right now. And one of them is, what is it called? The um, uh, good uh, cause eviction. Is that how, do I have that right? It is. Yes. Yes. Um, And so I will. And this was, if if I'm not mistaken, this, when you got these postcards back, this was the number one issue Mm -hmm. from the people who decided to give you input on this out of 1,200 responses. This was the number one that they said this is needed. Yes, I yes. think at, at the doors we heard a lot about the lack of repairs, the retaliation because when you don't have good cause, uh, a landlord instead of repairs can hit you with a 30-day notice without any trouble and then just move in a tenant who's going to complain less. But what we what we did is we were hearing from our electeds over and over no matter how many times we brought these issues to them, no matter how bad the housing situation got, that 10 was too many rights to move forward, um, that that this was too big a package. So we invited everybody who had signed postcards. We invited tenants from across the city of Buffalo to come to something we called the Tenant Power Summit. And and there, tenants voted on the rights that were most important to them. Uh Good Cause was the absolute breakaway winner. And since good, so good cause eviction really does not mean that nobody can ever be evicted. It simply means that a tenant in good standing, a tenant who is up to date on their rent, a tenant who is not smoking inside of a non-smoking building, who gets along with their neighbors, and who isn't running an illegal puppy mill out of the bathroom, right, right? is not doing anything to violate the terms of their lease, they have a right to stay there. And it does not change any of the existing you know, processes for legally evicting somebody through the courts whatsoever. It simply means that a tenant should have a right to stability. Sarah Frazier and Tamara Jenkins from Push Buffalo. And we close with Tim Thielman from the Campaign for Greater Buffalo History, Architecture, and Culture. In fact, I had a, a black work colleague uh, who described Jefferson to me literally as well. It's the black Main Street. And chock-a-block with businesses. It was a commercial district yes. equivalent to Hurdle or Elmwood today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You had a dense population, people living in doubles. You had maybe 18,000 people in that immediate neighborhood, and they needed someplace to go for a pair of shoes, get their hair cut, and that could all be done in a couple block stretch of Jefferson Avenue. That lasted till probably 1970 or so when we begin to see massive Uh, clearances of buildings. And, you know, I did, uh, because of the shooting that occurred in May, uh, I was aware, of course, of the effort to lure tops into the neighborhood and uh, that it was um, the place where so many people got their food. And I thought, but why 
um, a big supermarket. What happened to all the mom and pops? Mm-hmm. And so I uh, did some research on it. The, the idea yeah. of the shop store is no more. And I don't say that to be, be quaint. The, the rhyme just came out. Uh, yep. the, the, the idea that you'd have buildings with retail on the bottom and apartments above. Yep. Contributing to both the commercial viability and some of the housing density. How many yep. of those buildings came down and why? <laughs> Hundreds. Why? There were a lot of reasons. The, uh, but if we go back, uh, this didn't happen overnight. We, uh, something like the Kensington Expressway or an urban renewal problem program. They're not concocted and implemented within a span of one or two years. These are decades. A amazing thing that uh, we often use in our uh, historic preservation research um, are a set of aerial photographs from 1927. The earliest aerial photographs of Erie County, they were made for a road Erie County highway project. Where are we going to build highways for the urban future? And so those photographs were done. They show Jefferson Avenue. They show Genesee Street. They show the east side densely built up with uh, innumerable mom-and-pop businesses that are feeding off this pedestrian stream that's walking up and down Genesee, walking up and down Jefferson or Broadway, getting off streetcars, getting off buses at corners, Jefferson and Utica. And that's where you get this locus of businesses. So a mom-and-pop could start a business in a relatively cheap container, a space that had housing up above, retail down below, and a predictable stream of people going about their business, doing the daily round. And it was great for all walks of life. Uh, Small children could be sent on missions to get the bread and the milk without fear and it's a block up the street. It's around the corner. Um, sure, special occasions, you would have to go to a department store downtown, but you could go to Grants on Jefferson. Mm-hmm. You could buy an engagement ring on Jefferson. And was yeah. the primacy of the car what kind of started the decline? You know, Dave, that, that's correct. And it's a push-pull. More, there, more than just the Kensington, but the idea that you didn't have you didn't need the walkable neighborhoods anymore, so therefore people didn't necessarily go to the store right around the corner with the housing That's above. how the planners thought. So when the car was coming, all the planning was done for cars. For example, there we, I showed a series of photographs. This is amazing. Did you know that until about 1900, 1910, when it snowed, people cleared the sidewalks? Because that's how By people themselves. got around. Yeah. yeah. They they sledded. Oh, because they had to because they were walking still. Right. right. And okay. they sledded in the streets. That changed with cars. And we don't even think about it. It's reflexive. The snowplow clears the street. Where do they dump it? On the sidewalks. Right. That makes it hard to walk. And it privileges people in cars. Whereas young people, old people, that hurts walkable businesses. Tim Tillman is with us from the Campaign for Greater Buffalo History, Architecture, and Culture. He's recently pulled together a presentation looking at lost Jefferson. A lot of the analysis we've heard before certainly looks at the Kensington, certainly looks at race riots of the 60s, but your perspective is that it's really more than that. It's the car and what else? So the car is privileged. You are building the Kensington 
And the urban renewal projects, particularly on the Lower East Side and the Lower West Side, they are forcing, at a stroke, five, 6,000 people to find new housing. After the war, you have FHA loans, cheap loans for new housing. New. Not, not existing, new. Where could new housing be built? On greenfield on site sites. Of, or on the that, site of old housing that you tear down. Yes, that are, be, that are being connected by these new highways. So there's a devaluing of existing buildings in favor of new buildings. Only certain people could uh, get these new buildings. And then there was massive demolition of older buildings in the Ellicott District, a, a push northward into the Fruit Belt and Cold Springs. And then you had some panicked reactions on the part of the city, the state, private owners, unscrupulous real estate people um, that led to some massive housing abandonment and demolitions, people moving out, there's fires, uh, things like that. And then you look at the census data, uh, which I did, 1970, you had experienced a 21% drop in population from 1960 and then to 1980, a 50% drop in population in Cold Springs. That's abandonment of housing stock Mm. and demolition of housing stock. And you confirm that with the analysis of aerial photographs. You see uh, in 1950, solidly built up houses. And suddenly you you go to uh, 1990 and there's its little house on the prairie. And that's what happened on Jefferson. So is the solution then to make sure that every development anywhere, uh, east side, west side, wherever, is mixed use with residential and commercial? There's no question. And I would go further. I would say it's incumbent upon the state and the city and the federal government to build this type of building, this shop house. Don't do it as a public-private development. No. We need public money to replace the building stock that was taken, and we need low rents to enable mom-and-pop businesses to form because that's the glue, that's the foundation for neighborhood revitalization. Let me push back against that a little bit. I've heard people in the neighborhood say nothing will improve this neighborhood without neighborhood ownership. Um, the, the the classic example is the African Heritage Food Co-op. Yep. They don't want another supermarket. They want something locally right. owned where they can then invest the profits, have have some viability. If you're taking and plunking in a huge amount of federal or state housing projects, you still don't have the flow of money to the community, do you? Well, you, you, you know, Dave, I, I, I think uh, part of it is perception of what is a federal or state housing project. I, this would be paid for by federal and state money, but you're getting in form the shop house that you tore down in the 1970s. So I would say, no, I don't want a 11-story high uh, building okay. like Ellicott Mall. What I want is um, small-scale uh, buildings such as we had so a local mom-and-pop neighborhood-based can, in fact, operate a business. Right now, 
the method to revitalize these neighborhoods is to get a big corporation that specializes in yeah. putting big buildings up and then, uh, you know, having a automobile based, uh, you know, little plaza or something that does not work. Tim Thielman from the Campaign for Greater Buffalo History, Architecture and Culture. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts or listen on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Jay Moran, and thanks for listening.